Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. The following program is a replay of a show first broadcast in 2004. Harry? You cannot go through the, the honor roll of uh, New Orleans music over the decades without running into one name over and over again uh, in various capacities, writer, producer, performer. He's, he just stands as a giant astride New Orleans music and especially New Orleans piano music. And uh, I'm very pleased to be sitting here talking to him today. Alan Toussaint, welcome. Hello. And also, which doesn't appear in your bio, um, the avatar of sartorial splendor in New Orleans. You are an incredibly well-dressed man. Uh, you like clothes. Uh, yes, definitely. I have to have something when I come outside. <laughs> I'd best do my best. <laughs> and I believe you would you would be uh, fairly credited with inventing the tuxedo and sandals <laughs> look. <laughs> Not deliberate, but it just happened that way. I'm a sandals person. Ah, for the comfort. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yes, it's a wonderful look. But let's talk about um, how you got started in. Uh, in music, and particularly, what what drew you to the piano? Well, the piano was uh, a piano was sent to my house uh, from my aunt for my sister to play. And when they brought it in and set it on the set it in our front room, uh, it was love at first sight because uh, it, it was instant gratification. When I walked over to it, I immediately got a sound. It wasn't like picking up a trumpet or anything. Now, I was a little old guy, around six and a half, and uh, I just fell in love immediately. Mm. And even the next day, I began not playing anything, of course, but pressing it and seeing that this is high and this goes low and it gets higher as you go up. And uh, I started mimicking things by ear as soon as I could. My sister began taking music lessons, piano lessons, which she hated. <laughs> I think she started out with a bad teacher. But she learned theory early, like where the E was and where C was on the paper. And she she was the first one who would show me, this that you're playing here is right there on the page. Mm. So that was my first theory lesson. And uh, that's how I tied in the reading part with the playing by ear. And when did you uh, get your first paying gig? Oh, uh, at age of 13, uh, we formed a little band called the Flamingos. Snooks Eaglin, guitarist, genius of a guy. Yeah. Uh, Benjamin Gregory, Walter Lang on trumpet, Benjamin Gregory on tenor saxophone, Frank Moten on tenor saxophone, Ferdinand Bijou, trombone, James Jackson on uh, drums. We didn't have a bass because Snooks played, Snooks played so much you didn't need a piano either, but there was no way of getting rid of me. <laughs> but uh, we formed a, a small band, and and we played in some places where we shouldn't have been. <laughs> but uh, that's my first paying gigs. Uh -huh. yes. And did you have formal training? I mean, did you study it in school or... Well, if you put all my days together, formal training, it wouldn't reach 30 days, uh, which I'm not glad to say, but that's just a fact of my history. 
because I do believe in formal training. I'm not one of those who think you'll lose something. I think the more you can uh, add formal training to what you already have, it gives you more avenues to say what you have to say mm. if you have something to say. It's like trash in, trash out. Mm. But uh, I went to the Xavier Junior School of Music as a uh, as a small boy, and uh, I did not practice my minuet and G's as I should have. I was too busy, which had me hooked. Mm -hmm. It was so exciting. And my mother soon gave up. As as innocent as the tuition was, it still was too much to waste at that time if I wasn't going to adhere to the... uh, page six when it's time to go to the next uh, next uh, lesson yeah. but I must say that I I stayed with the music every day in one way or another I began listening to recordings and arrangements and and knowing where things were on the paper I began writing arrangements that mm. I heard on on records that I liked a lot uh, and uh, for some reason, I, I fell in love with arranging and writing really early, uh, really early on. And uh, being with the Flamingo Band, that gave me a chance to hear the arrangements that I was interested in doing, some of them that they would play. And uh, that was a pleasure. And and I began writing songs just because I think after you play around, if you play every day, something of you have to start coming out and say, uh, give me a life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, what was the first song you wrote? Do you remember? Oh, no. I don't remember the first song I wrote. I remember the first one recorded that I wrote uh, was uh, by Roland Cook called Long Lost Love. It was one that... Just... Do you remember our long lost love? It's one of those kinds. And how old were you when you wrote that? You had a oh, long... I was uh, eighteen. So you didn't have a long lost love. You were. Oh no, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah. But I was. I, I wrote all kinds of songs. Uh, many really crazy songs. I mean, really. Uh, and I. I even heard a lot of hillbilly music as a boy. So I wrote some of those kinds of things too. <laughs> There, there was a lot going on. It was a marvelous time. You heard that music on the radio? Were you, oh, yes. Yeah. And yes. were you going to clubs? Did you, did you You got to see Professor Longhair a lot, play live, right? When I was a boy, I didn't see him a lot. I saw him one time at one of the record hops. Mm. Well, sock hops. The, they called them record hops, but it wasn't like they were records playing. It was a high school uh, get-together and... Uh, Professor Longhead was playing a little spinning piano, and because uh, I had accepted Fess as this larger than life, and I saw him playing this little spinning piano, and it was just marvelous to see the real Professor Longhead. 
because I had been listening and mimicking Professor Longhead for a long time. Tell I left Professor Longhair somewhere about midway there. <laughs> you made it your own. It's what you're supposed to do. Well, reflections of whatever has happened in these years. But uh, Professor Longhair was such a strong influence that I don't leave home without him. Mm-hmm. People have basically, when I talk to them about uh, Professor Longhair, they point out the rumba rhythm coming into rhythm and blues. Uh, would that be, you, you think, his greatest influence in terms of musically? Oh, yes, 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 yes. And that, that old kind of voice. Uh, a few people come, come along every now and then with the voice like that, that kind of, it sounds like a defective voice, but it's so charming. You, you, want, you can't get enough of it. Louis Armstrong had that mm-hmm. kind of thing that... Uh, sound like uh, you swallowed a stick or something. Mm-hmm. Well, Professor Longhair had that kind of old gravelly voice. Also, he would sing whereas he would jump an octave with some things, uh, which was very interesting. And it passed by so quickly. You don't know, uh, many don't notice uh, that that's a thing of Professor Longhair as well as the way his voice sounds. He would say things... Like, look at that, she ain't got no hair. And mm-hmm. drop that octave mm-hmm. on his voice, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, which was a very interesting thing. Uh, just, uh, when I first heard that as a boy, I just wondered, what would make a man do that? <laughs> you know? And, and what, did you ever come up with the answer to that question? No, not at all. <laughs> you have to be fess. Uh-huh. But um, I was 16 when I first saw him. And that was very, very exciting. I didn't dare say a word to him, but I went over near where, uh, near the piano and stood there. But uh, I, I hadn't gotten to the point where I knew that I could actually speak to Professor Longhair. And, and I saw him play. And then I didn't see him again until uh, I went to One Stop Record Shop. I used to go get records when, when I did start buying records on my own. Uh, and when they had to send in the back to get a certain recording that was in stock, who was the f- file room guy but Professor Longhead come out with the records. Really? And that was the one. And I wondered, do, do you all know who that is? <laughs> you know. And, of course, they probably did, but it didn't mean the same to them as it meant to me. But for him to bring that out just was monumental. That was a marvelous moment. I remember that forever. Mm. Well, it's it's a bittersweet uh, memory because the idea that a guy who had that much influence over this this whole yeah. town's music should be doing that instead of playing and, yeah. and playing good pianos. Well, we always did take our music for granted around here. I think. Yeah. yeah. What's the uh, first hit record you had? 
Well, the first one that I produced was probably uh, Opupadu, just as you know. And then, well, and the first one that I wrote, well, let's say the first one that made a hit, like to number one, was Mother in Law. Ah, the Mother in Law. Could you could you play a little bit of that? Oh, sure. Actually, we used to do four songs on each session in three hours, and <laughs> and we did uh, we did uh, "Hello, My Love," "Tainted the Truth," "Mother-in-Law," and won a ten thousand dollars reward. Well, we thought "Hello, My Lover" was the song, and it was an okay song, uh, very easily forgotten. <laughs> and "Mother-in-Law" came out as the next record that would come out behind it, whatever the other one would have done. And that proved to be uh, a signature song for Nikato and myself, mm-hmm. in a way. But now I wrote Java for Al. Uh, well, I wrote Java actually for myself. It was later recorded by Floyd Kramer, then Al Hurt. That was written uh, before Mother-in-Law, and uh, uh, it came out again by Al Hurt, and that, that's when it really went to the moon. So the first uh, hit song that I wrote, I think, may have been uh, Java. And and just reading up on you in preparation for this conversation, I I, I re- discovered something I hadn't known, which is why you read, uh, which is that uh, you wrote whipped cream. Oh yes, yes. Albert took the honky-tonk out of it. Oh, he was fine. He did a great version, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and if you listen to the Stokes, the way the Stokes did it, and listen to Herb Alpert, they he stuck pretty close to the to the arrangement. And, uh, of course, his hip flair to the trumpet added something very tasty to me, as far as I'm concerned. And that, that became the theme of the, the dating game, the right? The first dating the game, The first yes. dating game. So that and was... after they uh, understood the formula, then they, re- they wrote others like that <laughs> to take its place, which was fine because time moves on. Everybody kind of who cares about this stuff knows about how, how Motown worked. Uh, what was the scene like here when you guys, I mean, you had this incredible string of hits. You were producing, you were writing, you were, you were, you were playing piano on most of those records as yes, well, right? just about all of them, yes. What was, what was it like? I mean, that, it wasn't the factory like Motown, right? Or, no, not, not like that, and I really appreciate Motown. I thought that was a marvelous plan that worked very well. Uh, I, I, I will always think of that for all times as to be one of the... Uh, the most cognizant efforts towards uh, the record industry. Uh, but we had a wonderful time. And let me say that it, 
we can't mention uh, the New Orleans scene of music without mentioning Dave Bartholomew as a trailblazer. Mm. Dave Bartholomew set an interesting pace here. And I uh, I think of him every, whenever I'm thinking of the record industry and how he worked his thing. And he didn't fix what wasn't broken. Uh, but uh, and there was a clan of uh, session musicians who played on everything generally. Uh, Red Tyler, Lee Allen, Earl Palmer on drums, Frank Fields on bass, usually Justin Adams on guitar, uh, later on being Roy Montrell people like that and uh, people would come in uh, and bring artists in and the artists would just come over to the pianist and sing a little bit of their song how it goes and then the piano player would learn it and then start playing the changes and other guys would come in or either you dictate to them how it should go and that's the way sessions were done not much not much pre-planning at all mm. and never pre-rehearsal never wow and it was a full song per session, three-hour session. The scale was $41 in a quarter. <laughs> and the leader got double when, uh, when the union was, well, when the union forced them to pay them. <laughs> and, uh, but it was a wonderful education. Uh, one of the figures here that uh, I came to New Orleans way too late to have any personal knowledge of except his records, but you worked with him. Uh, tell me a little bit about working with Lee Dorsey. Great. As I say, his voice has a smile to it. If you listen to Lee Dorsey, for some reason you can see a smile. Uh, and something in you can feel that smile.
was a pleasure working with him. For one thing, he was high-spirited, very high-spirited. Loved life all the time, all day long. And he was a, a body and fender man. That was his normal skill and trade. And so You don't mean in the blues sense. You mean for real. Oh, for real. No, he bent fenders all yeah, day. Yeah. And I don't mean having wrecks. He was straightening them out. Mm. And uh, he was extremely good at it. The first time I worked with Lee Dawson, he came to the studio with his greasy uh, mechanic clothes on. Everything about him was still like that. And his his little flask of uh, Shepard's Regal uh, had some of his uh, grease on it. Mm. But uh, he was very high-spirited and loved singing so much. He And he he not only loved himself, he loved listening to others. And he just really got off on it. And it was a pleasure to be around him with such high spirit. He always had something very uh, kind of humorous to say. And, and he was a very good entertainer on stage as well and a good dresser when it was time to do that. Also, Lidos and I hung out a lot. We hung out during the club days. We rode motorcycles together. We raced Cadillacs together. Really? Yes, when I bought a Cadillac uh, one time and, and uh, he liked it very much, so he went to his body shop and built him one. looked better than mine. <laughs> looked better than mine. And uh, we had quite a life together. Among the songs you wrote for him were... Working in the Coal Mine, of course. Lover of Love. Get Out My Life, Woman. Uh, yes, We Can, Can. Could you could you uh, run one of those down for oh. us? Lover of love, now that's a what you are. No one in particular, that's your line. Uh-huh. Joe, Jack, Jim. Yes, we can. 
And also Freedom for the Stallion, uh, which was a ballad, which uh, he, he liked very much. And I wrote several ballads for him. He was a good ballad singer as well. He had so much heart in everything he he sang because uh, he loved it so much. And I think he felt blessed to be singing. You could tell that uh, he was very glad to be at the moment, all the time, and all of who he was was at at the mic. He didn't leave fragments somewhere else. It's just marvelous and so easy to work with. You know, you, there are people in this town uh, in the present day, and I'm not going to mention any names, who uh, uh, seem blessed with an enormous amount of talent and sometimes don't seem to respect their own talent. Uh, oh, that can happen. Yes. Yeah, but um, it's great to hear that he he, he got it. <laughs> Oh, yes, yes. So uh, then you moved, you started working in Los Angeles and started bringing uh, uh, New Orleans people out there. You did, uh, you worked on, with the Meters in Los Angeles, or was that, the, was that cut, were those records cut in Los Angeles, or were they cut out here? The Meters records were cut in New Orleans. Uh, in New Orleans? Yes. The, uh, the, the Warner Brothers, the reprise ones? Oh, yes, they were recorded ah, in New Orleans, ah. yes. But I did do a couple of recordings in California. In fact, I recorded uh, a couple of things of my own in California. Uh, the, the album that I did, Happiness and things like that on, was recorded in, That's right. in California with Charlie Green, mm. which uh, I really enjoyed a lot. And then uh, Jerry Wexler produced an album on me, the Motion album, that was uh, recorded in, in California. And uh, it was great out there. I mean, things worked smoothly and, and very professional. And uh, but it's an entirely different trip being here. Mm. Uh, but everyone was very gracious in California, and I've I've recorded in New York some too. But the bulk of my recording has always been in New Orleans, and the meters, all that stuff was here. Mm. Mm. Except a couple of times we went to Atlanta to do things like. In fact, yes, we can. Can was recorded in Atlanta. Something had gone wrong with the studio here. And we went to Atlanta to uh, the LaFeva studio and had a great time, just wonderful. So we went to Atlanta to do a few other sessions. But whenever we left here, it was because something wasn't happening with the studio here. Mm. Uh, I, we didn't go somewhere else because somewhere else was so great. We went somewhere else because we had to. Those amazing meters records um, in the mid-70s where they sort of exploded out of New Orleans and, you know, onto everybody's consciousness. I remember getting uh, rejuvenation and not knowing a thing about New Orleans music, uh, but that record just stayed on my turntable and drove my neighbors crazy because <laughs> I played it so loud. And I, I, didn't, I didn't know the history of it. I didn't know where it came from. I didn't know what it meant. I just know how it felt. That must have been a shock. <laughs> it was a good shock. It was a great shock.
The Meters was the most perfect group that I've ever witnessed anywhere. Uh, for as uh, compatibility with each other and uh, how they uh, inspired each other mm. and the sparks that flew in all directions. You can hear the music, how those sparks are flying everywhere. And again, I must say, as I would say at other times, Art Neville, the nucleus of it. There's something about that man. The man is magic. And I say that because uh, Art can put a group together next week and something exciting will happen in the world, if he would. But uh, the meters, every, every one of the guys in their own right was just amazing as you, if, if you listen to that because you can hear everyone very clearly. Mm -hmm. And the way the sparks are flying and that syncopate, that kind of syncopation which seems like it's it's going in all directions, but if you if you notice there's a unity there that it really takes them to do it at its best. It takes those guys exactly. And uh all you had to, to produce the me like I've produced many people and many people I've have, I wrote and arranged, taught them the songs, do this, that and the other. With the meters you just open the door and let them in and close the door and and don't get in that way. Mm. Because for one thing, they they prepared themselves all the time. Because they loved what they were doing and they slept and ate it. My evaluation about the meters is always from my own uh, anatomy and ear and spine bone. <laughs> the most perfect group. And then you started uh, really making a name for yourself as a, as a recording artist in your own right, um, stepping out from behind uh, the glass. And uh, those, those uh, was it Warner's or Reprise? I can never tell the two labels apart. But. Well, I started uh, my first, well, my first recording on my own was way back there during those early days of mm -hmm. Long Lost Love. Mm -hmm. on, uh, uh, it was released to RCA Victor. There was a talent scout named Danny Kessler who would move about the country and record people here and there. And when I was playing on the session with Roland Cook and Roy Gaines, he kept saying in the control room, turn the piano up, turn the piano up, because he liked what was happening. And he came out and asked me what I considered doing a record. And uh, I pondered for a long time, for about two seconds, and said <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, Beats the alternative. <laughs> right. And I did prepare things. That's where Java came from. That was one of the tunes on that recording. Uh, but uh, later on, Steve Terrell, who was with uh, Septon Warren, uh, we, uh, I was with Marsha Sehorn at this time, and we were there to talk about some of our artists being uh, on their label, uh, uh, our label being a subsidiary or uh, any business transaction that, we, that Marshall deemed necessary. And uh, Steve Terrell knew my my vocal and knew my arranging and all, and he thought, why don't you record yourself? And I had no interest at all in that. But uh, I thought if he believed that, why not try it? So that's when I first recorded myself with Septon Warren. And we did that in California with Charlie Green. 
And at that time, I did vocals because that early recording with Java was all instrumental. I never really wanted to sing at all. Just really? Just enough to teach the artist a song. I still feel that way. Well, I love to hear you sing, so. <laughs> well, thank you. But uh, that's what that was the first uh, vocal album. Then I did uh, others as a special request from Warner Brothers. And as Marshall, my partner, moved about, he was always about business. And if there was a market for my vocal as well as writing for others, why not? Uh, pursue it some so we did and I did at his request and things like that but I never felt uh, adequate so uh, I always thought my singing was a demo for someone else to hear the song and uh, wow. I'm glad some folk listened and, and covered them yeah but you know I've, I've been seeing you at Jazz Fest performing uh, for years singing and playing and uh, people seem to like to hear you do the, do the songs too well, thank you. But let's go back a minute to the to those records in the 70s, because I think that was some amazing work that you did. Uh, the songwriting and the and the just the whole sound of those records was different from anything that anybody else was doing. And yet um, uh, you had hits with them. You had hits with those songs. Um, and did you did you tour behind those records? Well, I did, and, and I, I did a, one tour with Warner Brothers, which was first class. They rolled out the carpet everywhere. Uh, it was a brief tour, and it was on the, on the road with Lowell George, who was a prince of a man. He sure was, yeah. A prince of a man. So dear and sincere about the music. So you, you think the world looks crazy. Up your lies like it's good for her, like apple pies, and she don't even cry. She is not a fool, she's just trying to do what her heart says to, to love you.
he loved New Orleans music as well. In fact, he was responsible for. Uh, he, he took one of the songs I wrote for Lee Dorsey called "Sneaking Sally Through the Alley," and he recorded it on Robert Palmer in New Orleans in our studio. And he funkified it up. He and the meters, something terrible. It was marvelous the way he did that. Uh, he was such a cool, laid-back, sincere, dear man. And also he had a great heart. Uh, uh, he gave me some comforting words at a time when they were needed very badly. Uh, so I, I saw his heart in a, in a different way that also that wasn't shown every day. But, uh, yeah, I made that tour with Warner Brothers. Well, let me say that of, of, uh, I've done two major kind of tours in my life. Before I turned 20, I toured with Sherlyn Lee. I took Hughes Smith's place. He was out ill. And I, uh, my first airline trip was I flew to Charlotte, uh, Asheville, North Carolina to meet with Sherlyn Lee and I was their pianist. Uh, which was <laughs> most exciting for me. And uh, I was just leaving the Flamingo Band at that time, so I, and I still was enthusiastic about arranging, so I would arrange a lot of music that they didn't play a lot mm. because they had the, uh, the show that we had to do. But I got a chance to hear some of my arrangements played back there, which helped a lot. But I did the tour in uh, with Sherlyn Lee early on, and that that was lasted almost a year. In in fact, and uh, then I did many years later, of course, seventy five, the Warner Brothers tour, the Southern Nights tour, mm-hmm. with Lil George, Little Feet. And uh, let me tell you, Little Feet was hot and funky. Mm-hmm. It was wonderful. And they had such a good following. Uh, fortunately, people tolerated us until Little Feet got out there. But uh, it was indeed a pleasure and quite an experience. Those were different days, though, when audiences seemed to have open ears and promoters seemed to uh, be willing to open their ears to other things. And nowadays, if you're an opening act, it's like... Uh, a little ride through purgatory uh, oh, for the hope okay. that you know somebody might come early and uh, not be angry that uh, their favorite act isn't on yet. Creatively, you're you're moving into into jazz now, and you've been doing some jazz. Uh, gigs. Well, yes, I've. Uh, well, let's say I'm, my whole life is moving into jazz, but as uh, as we live, uh, being reflections of of what's around and about us. Uh, that's uh, a part of who we are. Uh, so it just had to come. And uh, about a year ago, I, well, I started even a couple of years ago. Well, three Novembers ago. And I started writing some jazz tunes, and I wrote loads of them. And as I would write another one, it became more inspiring and more inspiring. And... Uh, I have, uh, of course, some synthesizers at home. I could take them to the finish. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just got to be such a groove till I fell in love uh, all over again with uh, what almost seemed like a uh, a childish process because it was a whole different kind of writing for me. And I, w- I could go places that I 
would I don't go when a company calls and say we need to make the cash register ring. Uh, I just uh, went some innovative places and uh, I listened to the art itself as the art dictate to you sometimes, well, many times. And it's a most interesting journey. I, I, I never even gave it a thought where it was going. I just kept on doing it and am still doing it. But, uh, of course, along with that, I'm writing. Uh, I write daily. I, I mm. do some kind of writing because the world is so full of inspiration. But I, I'm still writing a lot of the more uh, conventional kind of songs as well, uh, lyrical songs as well as uh, instrumentals. But, uh, yes, I must say uh, that slew of jazz songs is the most recent thing that I, I could answer to that the newest thing that's been added to my life. Mm. And uh, it's been a gas because, for one thing, it caused me to even give a listen to some things I hadn't paid attention to. Uh, like like what? Uh, like musicians who, in the jazz scene, mm. there's a whole jazz world that was always parallel. Mm. And sometimes some of us were so busy rocking we never rolled over that way to check them out, you know. We just knew it exists, but did we really give it a listen? And I've really grown to, even fairly recent, respect some guys that and some uh, jazz movements that I that was around before I was born, but I was busy on another avenue. Mm. And that's not a bad thing; it's just a thing. Could you uh, share one of your newer pieces with us? One of the jazz pieces? Yeah. Not yet. Oh, okay. Not yet. I organize them in such a way till I, I don't want to uh, desecrate them. Uh-oh. All right. Well, I would love to hear you just play one thing straight through that's instrumental, either, you know, from, from whatever era you'd like. Just play a simple ballad, maybe? This is with you in mind. That's the name of the song, mm. not you personally. Oh, okay, I was getting worried.
you were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Talk a little bit about what that was like. That was most exciting and most unexpected for me. Uh, being here in New Orleans, and I, I've never lived anywhere else, so I I only feel the pulse of New Orleans daily. And I I didn't know that anyone had uh, given me that kind of attention that would get me into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So that was, I guess, a highlight of my career. And being there, I remember the feeling, because everything was first class. It was at the Waldorf. And uh, it was all that... uh, the Oscars would be to mm. the movie industry. And they had the bio and the whole razzmatazz that goes along with it. And all all the who's who was there. And I, just, I was totally elated. And uh, even uh, after knowing that I'm going to be there and going there, every moment of it was still a surprise. And uh, some very dear people who I had known for many years was around. That was very comforting. Robbie Robinson was there because he was a part of things. He's a part of everything that's happening. Yeah. But uh, it was uh, monumental to me. And you played. Oh, I sat in with the band and yeah. played whatever was happening. I played, I think, on Lord and Miss Claude with Lloyd Price. I think uh. I played a bit on that. Oh, with someone. <laughs> yes. The most amazing thing about about uh, in a career that's really truly amazing is that um so many different kinds of people can cover your music, can cover your your songs and and get something valid out of them. Uh Herb Alpert, Glenn Campbell, uh people so far removed from the New Orleans musical scene can pull something out of you and and make it valid for them. Um is that something you tr- you try to be universal in that way, or is that just a a wonderful <laughs> wonderful way things come out? It just happens that way. Uh, I don't try that at all. In fact, uh, many times when another company requests that I record their artists, I I try and tame that in some direction and and find a target because uh, I can't help but notice myself. I'm all over the place when it comes to appreciation. But with Lee Dorsey, I could do anything. It just didn't matter. I could do something half soft shoe. Then I could go funky as James Brown, uh, uh, all kinds of ways. Uh, some places that no one has been before. But uh, as far as the diversification, that's just a part of my uh, reflections in life. Uh, what music is influencing you these days? What are you listening to? Not listening very much these days, uh, but uh, I'm writing right now more than listening. But I, 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 as I move about, I, I know the general scene mm-hmm. of what's the most in right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hear the uh, the hip hops and the little pops and and some of uh, what they call something else was still bubblegum. I hear that too. Uh, so uh, I know what that scene is, 
But as for listening and jamming off of it, I'm I'm not doing that. Uh, like I can remember in in earlier times in my life, I was a part of the scene out there who is jamming to particular music as well. Well, I'm not really doing that part of it. Do you think that there's that? <sighs> New Orleans is a city that hasn't really musically given way to the machines. Uh, its music is still live here, and, and it's still being played by players, and, yes. and people are still coming up learning to play as opposed to uh, machines. Do uh, you think it's going to come back around? I, I know it's hard to predict. You mean the whole country? Yeah. I mean, do you think the ear is going to get tired of machines and want to go back to the 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 humanity of live playing? Or is that... Well, it's hard for me to say because things uh, have a way of... Uh, I thought the Nehru suit was going to be around longer than it lasted. <laughs> you know, Benny Hinn is the only one still wearing one. <laughs> uh, it's hard to say. But, uh, I, I, I do think the hip-hop market and rap scene will be around for quite a while because they promote a mentality and, and, and keeps it in a certain place like in a way, producing their own audience. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's it's not good or bad, it's just what it is. Uh, as far as the, there's still uh, people who are studying at Juilliard. There's still uh, people, and, and let me say about New Orleans, there's, there's a, a thing that, as innocent as it appears, is good for us. The second line brass band. That thing is still very, very good for us. That loose feeling of this is just how it is in the street. It's not as technical as Brubeck, but check this out. That is still very hip and even respected. And I, and, and that some of those musicians develop it to a great level, like uh, Trombone Shorty. Trombone Shorty is impeccable. Yeah, I, I heard him playing the other night at Donna's, yeah. and I hadn't heard him in about a year, and I just couldn't believe how it came And the off. ideas of Kermit Ruffin, just, and, and I, I mentioned those because they do that street thing. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, there's still guys coming out like Peyton, yeah. who is doing it. And uh, so it, uh, I'm glad to say that New Orleans is... Uh, still staying live like you say yes yeah. uh, I'm so grateful that you spent some time with us today
thanks to Drew at Piety Studios for recording today's program. We shall return next week. This is Ralph, the talking computer, speaking. Or Ralph, the speaking computer, talking. Thank you.